This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by REI Co-op. They want to make the outdoors the largest level playing field on Earth. And this summer, they're kicking off more than a thousand new classes and events designed just for women. They're also running a series of all-women's outdoor retreats called... Utessa, am I saying that right? Outessa. Outessa, like... Outessa. There you go. Sally Johnson is the Senior Manager of Events Marketing at REI. She says the retreats are a kind of choose-your-own-adventure. You could come and you could spend the entire weekend in a hammock, or you could you could jam-pack your weekend. Mountain biking, trail running, rock climbing, stand-up paddleboarding, you name it. Last year, Sally attended one of the very first Outessa events. I just remember Friday evening. It's the first day, and so all these women had gone out and done all these different activities that day. And... It was like the first day of summer camp where you come in and you don't know anybody and you're kind of nervous. And then by that evening, every, it was like everybody, it, they were best friends for life. It really does sound like a summer camp for grown women. Yes. Yeah. With a little bit of wine thrown in, as I like to say. <laughs> Visit REI.com slash force of nature to find an Outessa retreat near you. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. You hear sometimes about how the Arctic changes people, how it can lead them to lose their minds a little bit, or make dumb mistakes. For some, the dumb mistake is just going to the Arctic in the first place, like those Swedish guys who tried to sail a hot air balloon over the North Pole in 1897. They crashed and froze to death, but not before taking a lot of opium, so I guess there are worse ways to go. There are also some people, and not very many, but there are some people like 33-year-old Sarah McNair Landry, who are at their best in the Arctic. Sarah grew up in the Arctic Circle on Baffin Island, and let's see, at 18, she was part of an unsupported expedition skiing to the South Pole. A year later, she became the youngest person to reach both the North and South Poles, And in 2011, she traversed the Northwest Passage by kite ski with her brother. So you have skis on your feet, like downhill skis, and then you have a harness around your waist, and you clip into a big kite, basically. It looks like a mini paraglider. On that expedition, they covered about 2,000 miles, or the distance from Boston to Denver on nothing but ice. And they did it in 12 weeks, also unsupported. At one point on the trip, they woke up to a polar bear coming in through the tent. My brother hit him in the face with a shovel, and I was able to run around and grab her gun and shoot off a shot just above his head, and it was just enough to convince him to slowly wander away. So, yeah, she's a badass. And a couple of weekends ago, Double X Factor host Florence Williams got to meet her at the Mountain Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado. Here's Florence. Yeah, Sarah was there premiering this documentary called Into Twin Galaxies. It's about an expedition she led last fall to cross the Greenland ice sheet by kite skis and whitewater kayaks. She and her boyfriend, kayaker Eric Boomer, and another expert kayaker, Ben Stukesbury, wanted to make a first ascent of an Arctic river. They decided they would kite ski all the way to the river, 400 miles and then descend that river in their kayaks and paddle out to the Arctic Ocean 
That was the plan anyway, but almost nothing went according to plan. In fact, on day seven of the 45-day trip, disaster struck. It, um, it was just a chain of unfortunate events, really. The funny thing is I was being really safe, too. I was like, I'm going to get my kite down before the winds pick up. I'll just roll it up. And oftentimes when it's really windy, it's hard to land your kite. So you just pull your safety release and it comes down. I mean, I've done it thousands of times. And when I went to pull my safety release, it didn't release. It malfunctioned. I got picked up quite a ways. And my sleds also got picked up in the air because they're still tied to me. It was high. <laughs> I remember being in the air and being like, oh, this is not good. Did you black out? I did black out when I hit, and I cracked my helmet, too. The next thing I remember is someone was standing beside me with my kite, which was really lucky that the guys were around, because if... Nobody was there to grab my kite. I would have probably kept getting dragged. Sounds like the way you fell, you folded over, like directly head, neck, back. Mm-hmm. So like cracked the vertebrae, separated a rib. I think the worst is like, like twisting. There, I mean, if it was a real serious back issue, yeah, you'd have a lot less movement. There's no like crazy sharp pain. That's not a shooting pain? No. It's just like an ache. Yeah. What hurt? And, and what was going through your head? I mean, everything hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my back, my ribs. It was just like, I wasn't sure if I had broken one or what was going on. But I mean, it must have been devastating, you know, to be so early on and to wonder if you could even go on. Yeah, it was, it was tough for the whole group. You know, it was tough for me because I didn't want to fly out. You put so much time and so much energy into these trips. And, you know, that's where I wanted to be. Not just to finish, but just, I mean, we do these trips because we love to be out there. Hmm. And spoiler alert, it turns out your back was broken. And so that must have been incredibly painful. And yet you kept going. How did you deal with the pain? We had a pretty good first aid kit. Good. Yeah, I had some yeah. drugs. Yeah. Did it hurt the whole time? It hurt the whole time. But in general, it, it, it did start feeling better, you know, as the trip went on. And um, and mentally, I think that really made a difference um, of like, okay, you know, it's getting a little better. Maybe tomorrow I'll be a little better in the next day. It took four days before Sarah could really kite ski again. And even now, months later, she's still recovering from the injury. But she kept going because this is a woman who's as tough mentally as she is physically. And she attributes both her resolve and her love for the wide open spaces of the Arctic to her parents, both adventure guides who raised the family on Baffin Island. You know, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned um, from both my parents was they have this really great philosophy for expeditions and it's that you don't need to suffer you don't need to come back with frostbite. You can go out there, and if you plan properly, um, you can have a good time. They really learned it, too, from the Inuit people up in Baffin, because it's, you know, in Baffin, is where we live. 
it's cold, it's minus 40 or cold in the winter, but you still travel with huge families and go out camping and um, there's just a way to do it that makes it fun and enjoyable and way more sustainable too. So what was it like growing up there? I mean, for me, it was home. It's all I ever really knew or really remembered. It's the fifth largest island in the world, so it's massive. The closest town to us is about 160 kilometers. And you're also right on the Arctic Ocean, which freezes in the winter time and becomes this amazing playground. Um, you know, we had this team of dogs, so we'd spend our weekends out camping or hunting or dog sledding. And, um, you know, having a dog team, it means you're breeding dogs and you're having puppies every year. And that was probably the best part was like continuous oh, totally. flow of puppies. Oh, puppy love. Husky puppies. Husky puppies. <laughs> you actually grew up really sheltered from sort of American girl norms, right? No TV, no bubble gum. Were there things that you heard about, you know, that other kids were exposed to that you wanted to do? Um, you know, we would we would still go south for the summers um, when we got out of school. So it wasn't like I was totally cut off from the outside world. <laughs> you got to see cool sneakers. And trees. <laughs> oh, and trees. Yeah. Right. You got to see trees and some green. I remember at the airport, my brother and I would always get excited about seeing trees and go kiss the first tree we saw. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, I've, I keep finding I'm drawn more and more to these open spaces, whether it's deserts or polar regions. Um, as much as I love the trees, they kind of get in your way. <laughs> you <wanna laughs> they block your view. You want to see that horizon. kite through them. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't try that. <laughs> For Sarah, that's kind of a deal breaker. She loves kiting, whether that's kite skiing across the Arctic or kite buggying through the Gobi Desert. And as much as Sarah loves kiting, her boyfriend, Eric Boomer, loves big drop kayaking. And that's how they ended up in Greenland together in the first place. It was an area they could explore that combined their world-class skills. Greenland's the second largest ice sheet in the world, and tons of rivers rush out from the ice cap into the Arctic Ocean. Rivers that no one has ever run before. We had decided we wanted to do this trip, ice cap to river, and we'd invited a friend and also world-class paddler, Ben uh, Stooksbury, on the trip. And it was while we were training for it that we chose the river. And uh, yeah, it was just hours and hours and hours of looking over Google Maps. And the earliest or the latest satellite images we could get were 2012. So we were just keeping our fingers crossed that not too much had changed between then and now. Yeah, so five years out of date, a lot of climate change going on. Hard to predict really what that territory is like. Mm -hmm. And bad images. And also the river was, because it had such high hills and canyons on each side, a lot of times the river was shadowed, so you can actually see it on wow. the satellite <laughs> images. So let's describe this journey. It, it really involves 700 kilometers of uh, travel, and a lot of that is over the polar ice cap. So you are the leader on that part. And, and describe what it is you're actually carrying and how you're traveling. Well, one of the big challenges on this trip was we were combining a winter sport with summer sport, which is a hard thing to do because just gear-wise, we had to be so strict on wh- what gear we brought. Um, and we really, you know, we used our kayaks as sleds. So we tried as much as possible to not bring so much gear, but we still ended up with a lot of gear that we And, and you have to haul it. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in, in, in the best scenario, you've got this kite up, you're on your skis, 
and you're pulling really two sleds, right? You're pulling a sled up full of, you know, 45 days worth of food and gear. Mm -hmm. And you're also pulling your kayaks. Exactly. <laughs> but the worst scenario was bad ice. And for the first few days of the trip, the approach in had to be on foot, not skis, because of the rough terrain, slashed with dangerous crevasses that could drop them suddenly into the pit of the ice sheet. Progress was slow. Oh, I'm sure our worst day was like a kilometer. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, there's days where we made more, but there's definitely one day I remember where we just, it was awful. It was so, 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 so many crevasses. And, you know, you just feel like you're in a little maze. That must be so demoralizing. I mean, you can see where you want to go, but you can't get there. Exactly. And then there's the crevasses. As you keep climbing up on the ice cap before you're quite at the snow coverage, you get these crevasses that have what we call snow bridges. So there's snow on top of them. Um, some are strong enough that they can support your weight and you can ski across them and other snow bridges aren't. And that's where it becomes really dangerous. Um, there's a scenario that somebody could fall into a crevasse and that's where we travel all tied to the same rope so that if somebody did fall in, um, hopefully the other two people could arrest the fall and get them out. So the terrain was dangerous and technical and the gear was complicated. Even the food was complicated. You know, you try to consume a lot. I would say this trip we're consuming between four to five thousand calories a day. Part of packing the food, which makes it really hard, is um, some of the food came from North America, but we're also flying to Greenland, so we didn't want to fly with too much food. So we did our final food pack out in Iceland before heading over. And it's always tough to find like nice salami, and we just couldn't find any in the last day. I went to this last store by myself, and there's these funny looking salamis, so I bought a bunch. And it wasn't until we got up on the ice cap that uh, we realized there were blood sausages. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was not popular that day. <laughs> After the miseries of the bad sausage and the bad ice came some glorious days of good ice. But that's when Sarah broke her back, which turned out to be a compression fracture. After a few days rest, the team kept going. A little behind schedule, but mostly smooth sailing, literally, all the way to the river they'd seen from satellites on Google. The only problem was, the river wasn't exactly there. It was frozen. At this point, they'd been hauling their plastic kayaks for 33 days. And now they would have to haul them down a frozen river one step at a time. It wasn't fully frozen. You know, we wore we wore dry suits and our life jackets, and we were constantly just breaking through to her knee, to her chest. There's something demoralizing about just like breaking through the ice and then crawling out, and then taking a couple steps and breaking through again. But the river was, it's hard to know what the river would have been like if it was actually flowing. Um, I was a bit worried about that section. You know, you're in this ice canyon, and if something goes wrong, how are you going to get out of this ice canyon? It's not like a natural river where you have these eddies where you can get out of the current and get out of your boat and pull aside. It's just you're, once you get into there, you're not really getting out. Um, 
so in some ways it made it safer because because we're walking down this river and we can you know we can move slow and scout after 19 hours of this the frozen river finally entered a lake a real lake that wasn't frozen we are in the water they'd seen this lake on google maps and they'd also seen a second river that flows out of the lake. Yeah. So the plan was to continue their journey along that river. So you finally get to the lake, get in your kayaks, you finally. Right? Yeah, which was amazing. First good paddle strokes. Gonna be a lot more to get to the ocean. Um, and then we paddled across this lake. Um, and it was actually Ben who was, who was so excited to get to the river. I mean, this is his section, right? Like <laughs> This is his thing. Yeah, it's his sport. It's like, and so I was like, whatever. I just want to camp. We'll see the river tomorrow. <laughs> but he paddled up to see the river, and literally the lake didn't drain out. There's no river. We came to paddle a river. There's no river. Well, let's set up camp. I'm... So it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. You got to the end of the lake, and it was like, oops. Yeah. It's like a bathtub. Like, Where is this river? Um, and I still don't know. On Google Earth, it's there. Yeah, it pours what, out of this lake. What happened to Google Earth? <laughs> so two strikes for Google Earth. But the satellite images had shown another river nearby. And at this point, the team's only option was to hike across and check it out. So it would take us all day to do two kilometers because we're just going back and forth and back and forth. Dragging these kind of useless kayaks. <laughs> well, not only kayaks, we have our kayaks, we have our kites, we have our skis. So we knew once we committed to the second river that we couldn't just jump back to the first one. If the first river turned out to be frozen and the second one non-existent, the third was the lucky charm. This was their Goldilocks moment. We're actually kayaking from being totally skunked, the biggest skunk ever, to this. Yeah. You. It's like both sides. It was one of the most amazing rivers I've ever seen. It had everything on it. It like had, what? it had these beautiful sections that all three of us were able to paddle. Really cool sections through canyons, and beautiful rapids that were exactly what Ben and Boomer kind of dreamed of. And you're, you're not a class five boater. So for you, you were able to portage around some of these bigger drops. But what was it like watching those guys go through these water? I mean, some of these waterfalls are incredible. They're big. They're big and they're remote. It's also, you know, in the video you see, it looks like we're just like, yeah, let's do it. And somebody jumps in their kayak and goes down. But there's a lot more that goes into that. A lot of scouting. A lot of scouting. And then we need to set safety. Um, so just the logistics of setting safety on these drops was, was really big and complicated. And, and these are really high stakes rapids because if you turn over at the wrong time or you get sucked under, you know, it could be lights out. Yeah. No, there was real consequences on these rapids. And then you add on top the remoteness and then you add on top our small team. You know, there weren't 10 of us in safety. There was two of us. Um, so if something did go wrong, it makes it a lot harder to, to do the rescue. Ah! 
you feel like at some point you wanted to talk Boomer out of running some of these drops? No, because I could tell, you know, it's, you got to trust. And um, you got to trust, like, I just had to trust that Ben and Boomer were going to make the right decision. And if they made the decision to run it, then you just have to support that. Finally, after 45 days of ice cracks and harrowing winds, map failure, whitewater triumph, during which the temperature kept rapidly dropping, the team paddled all the way out. That must have been quite a moment. After 700 kilometers, you get to your destination, which is the Arctic Ocean. Mm-hmm. What was that like? You know, it's kind of bittersweet because uh, in some ways it's like, yes, the Arctic Ocean, showers, good food. Um, you know, it, it's not. It's never those glorious ends. It's like, we just want to go to bed. We're cold and we're tired and we're hungry. We just want to go to bed and maybe tomorrow we'll enjoy it. Um, at the same time, you've just done this beautiful trip and you just spent all this time with these people and then it's done. You know, you just kind of all go back to your separate lives. and um, Yeah, so it's, it's not the way they make it look in films. <laughs> Sarah, what is it about Arctic exploration that appeals to you so much? I mean, I think, one, the Arctic is beautiful. I love it. Um, and even though it is cold and miserable at times, I feel like I've learned a way to be in the cold and be comfortable. And um, it's... I don't know, I don't like the word last frontier, but it is, you know, it's, it's huge, it's massive, the Arctic, and there's so many places to go, and they're so remote, and unless you're super, super wealthy, the only way into these places is kiting or dog sledding or skiing, and um, yeah, it's just so big, it's so remote, and so unknown. That's probably what draws me the most to it. That's Sarah McNair Landry, talking with Florence Williams at Mountain Film in Telluride, Colorado. Her film Into Twin Galaxies made its world premiere of that weekend. It was made by Jochen Small for National Geographic. This piece was produced by Phoebe Flanagan. Thanks again to REI for supporting Double X Factor. Find out more about how REI is putting women front and center this year at rei.com slash force of nature. We'll be back in two weeks with another Science of Survival. 